Well, let's turn, uh, I think, for the last time now in our Bibles to the letter of James, and we're going to read the closing verses from James chapter 5 and from verse 13 right through to the end. So unless we're going to have a survey uh, sermon next Lord's Day, uh, I think this is the end of uh, an entire year in which we've been intermittently working our way through this very wonderful letter. And James finishes in this way. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When I turned to this passage last night, uh, I was reminded of a minister Uh, I think we would call each other friends, although uh, I've never heard him preach. And the reason I was reminded of him is because I may have misjudged him. Uh, Members of his congregation told me that when he stood up to preach, the first thing he did was stand in complete silence and allow his eyes to roam around the congregation making eye contact with many people in the congregation while he said absolutely nothing. And I think my misjudgment of him was that visitors and perhaps even more members might find that rather intrusive and indeed intimidating, as though he was looking for their secret sins. And it struck me, I confess, for the first time reading this passage last night, not reading the passage for the first time, but this struck me for the very first time, that perhaps he was doing at the beginning of his preaching what James is doing at the end of his preaching. Because what James is doing at the end here is surveying in his mind's eye the congregation perhaps people he had served in the past who were now dispersed, as we're told in the opening verses of chapter 1. 
and in his mind's eye, silently gazing on different individuals and groups of individuals in the congregation. And he punctuates what he says, you will notice, four times with the words, anyone, 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 anyone. And he's thinking of four different categories. He's actually doing what every preacher should do every time he prepares a message. He should be thinking about how is the Word of God going to reach the people to whom I'm going to be preaching on this particular occasion. Probably the most influential book ever written in the English language on preaching, entitled The Art of Prophesying, written at the end of the 16th century and hugely influential on so many preachers in the past, suggests that every time a preacher preaches, he should realize he is speaking to at least seven different categories of people. So that while he expounds the Word of God, he expounds it for these people, he delivers to these people the food that will nurture them, so that the Word of God, as Paul says to Timothy, will be useful in their lives to teach them, to reprove them, to correct or heal or transform them, and to guide them in a righteous way of living. And this is exactly what James is doing here at the end of the sermon. He's looking around the congregation, and he's asking for a show of hands. Any one of you uh, going through a time of suffering? I guess most of our hands would go up just now. Any of you cheerful? Maybe a few hands. Is anyone here sick? Is uh, anyone here? And we'll come to his fourth category eventually. So he's thinking of us in, in four different kinds of circumstances. And the first in verse 12 is suffering. And it looks as though he, he means here suffering in general rather than sickness in particular, because you'll notice he goes on to speak specifically about those who are sick. So this covers any kind of pressure. Uh, this could be uh, physical suffering. This could be persecution, which some of them were experiencing. This could be the, the, the ordinary providences of life that causes anxiety. It could, be, it could be mental suffering, psychological difficulties. could be any of these things. What do you do if your hand has gone up when he said, does anyone here suffer? And his answer at first sight is profoundly disappointing. If you came to me and said, I am really going through the mill, and I said, well, pray, and walked on to the next thing, you, you wouldn't think much of my pastoral skills. And yet that's exactly what James does. You're suffering? Well, pray. It seems, it seems almost cruel. Um, as we've seen before, we, we're almost liable to ask the question, did you learn nothing from your brother, the Lord Jesus? But of course, we would misjudge James just as I may have misjudged 
my preacher friend uh, by sensing a great disappointment for a very simple reason. That if I were to say to him, but James, you're not telling me what I'm supposed to pray for. I think he might say to me, I know it's a year since you started studying my letter, but the opening chapter told you what to pray for when you are suffering. This whole letter is bookended with suffering. If you're going through suffering, he says in chapter 1, you are to count it all joy. It's not joy in itself, but you count it all joy because of what it's going to produce in God's grace in your life. And you'll need wisdom in order to be able to respond to the situation. Because how you respond to suffering as a Christian is as important as the fact that you're suffering. And if you're a Christian, you're, you're going to need to be able to keep on going. You, you need to be steadfast and patient and faithful. And so you see encapsulated in his single word command, pray, is that we should pray for these things to become realities in our lives. Am I suffering? Then let me pray that I will understand the Lord's ways sufficiently in my life that I will see that tribulation works patience and patience produces character and character produces the hope of glory. Let me not look at my suffering the way I would look at it if I were not a Christian. Let me look at it Christianly. Let me see it from the biblical perspective, and therefore pray, Lord, this is hard for me, but this would not have come to me except in my Father's providence and through my Father's hands. So produce through it your grace in my soul and your blessing on my life, and enable me to be wise Enable me to respond in a way in which my, my mind and my spirit is nurtured by Scripture. And, of course, this is, this is one of the great things about James. He is so obviously himself. He thinks in, in Bible terms. And, and this is the value of our Bible study, of our preaching of the Word, not that we amass information, but it does something to the whole perspective we have on life. So that we're not scurrying around looking for texts that might help us. Or getting our Gideon's New Testament out and reading through that list. Read this passage if this is what's happening to you. But we become kind of walking Bibles in our response. So is anyone suffering? then pray. And when you think about it, although James, curiously, hardly ever makes reference to his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, which is amazingly strange, you see how thoughts about his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, seep through almost everything he says. Think about the suffering that Jesus endured. 
How did he respond? He prayed. He prayed that there would be glory emerging from his suffering, and there was. He prayed that he would be able to wisely negotiate that suffering, and he did. And he also prayed that he would remain steadfast. And so for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he is set down at the right hand of his heavenly Father. Is anyone suffering? Then pray like this. But then he moves to what may seem to be the opposite emotion. In verse 13, is anyone cheerful? I'm not sure that's a great translation. Um, it, it might have been better to say, are, has any, are, any, are any of you in this situation where you've been cheered up? Um, this, is a, this, is a, this is language that's rarely used in the New Testament, but it's used in a very concentrated passage in Acts when Paul is shipwrecked, you remember, in the Mediterranean. And several times in that chapter, Paul tells those who are in danger of death, he doesn't say, cheer up. He says, take heart. Actually, interesting, this language is used in the, in the Greek medical literature for uh, the kind of thing a, a doctor might say about the patient. Uh, he's in good heart today. So are any of you in good heart? Um, perhaps you, you're in that happy situation. You've, you've come through the, the period of pressure and, and you've, been, you've been cheered up. You, you take heart. Um, so what do you do? Well, you smile. And, and that's nice. But uh, James is not interested in your grinning. He's interested in your singing. And uh, he gives this simple answer again, doesn't he? It's really, really remarkable when you think about how much space he gives to the third category. Is anyone cheerful? Then let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. Some of you, I suspect, were singing praise earlier on. I thought I heard little voices here. Um, and if this is being recorded, that probably ought not to be recorded beyond the people who are watching it just now. Um, but why? Think about it this way if you're not a singer. This is not given to us simply as a piece of good advice. This is actually a command of Scripture. Sing. Do you sing when you're cheerful? Well, I'm not a very good singer. James isn't interested in whether you're a good singer or not. He's saying, sing praise. Sing praise. Why is that important? Because singing praise lifts our eyes from the things that make us cheerful to the one from whom they come. It's as simple as that. 
And it saves us, doesn't it, from one of our great mistakes and even at times idolatries that we focus our minds on the good things that have been given to us and we lose sight of the one who has given them to us. We are relieved that we are no longer in the first category, but we're in the second category because things are going well and we have good reason to be cheerful. And so even the best of us slip into the situation in which subliminally we don't need God as much as we did before. But when we sing praise, I mean, none of us surely is idiotic to stand up and sing, praise me from whom all blessings flow. And so singing praise gets me out of myself and beyond the good things to the one who is the good giver. Count your blessings. Well, you taught this in Sunday school or somewhere. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And this is why he's saying, if you are cheerful, then you, you learn to sing. Um, and you learn to sing because you've something to sing about. What is there to sing about in the middle of October 2020, anywhere in the world. But there is something for the believer to sing about anywhere, everywhere, at any time. Because he or she has so much to praise God for. And I think there's a very important element in this. Um, Singing is more than an intellectual exercise, isn't it? It's much more than an intellectual exercise. In its very nature, it engages singing praise to God, engages the mind. Says Paul to the Corinthians, I will sing with understanding. I'll use my mind when I sing. And it affects the will. And indeed, we sing about what we will do. But singing also is... uh, reality that goes deep into the affections in our lives. And brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not simply a matter of knowing your Bible better and being determined that you will do things better, because that will never be effected unless your affections are transformed. And so you are pleased with the will of God. That's what Paul speaks about in Romans 12, 1 and 2, isn't it? That our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we, our affections towards the will of God are changed. And it's when our affections are changed. Correspondingly, the same is true when we sin. Um, There are some very obvious sins in which as a as a counselor or pastor, you would always need to ask the question, has the affection for that been broken? Because until the affection for that is broken, there is little hope that the will will be able to conquer, even although the mind understands what to do. And the same is true in reverse. This is, this is why we miss singing 
so much. Because it's not just our intellect. It's not just our will. It's our affections that are captured and expressed. And we experience that, don't we? There are some things we sing. In in this room, there are some things we sing like great anthems. Why do we sing those particular psalms and songs as great anthems? Because there are some psalms and hymns that touch our affections in very special ways. And we are called, therefore, says James, if we are cheerful, if we have taken heart, if we are in good heart, to sing praise to God. But then he turns to this third category. Anyone suffering? Okay, we've talked to you. Anyone cheerful? Okay, we've talked to you. And then a much longer section, 14 through 18, is anyone sick? Now he's thinking about the congregation because the person who is sick here is not actually physically in the congregation because they're so sick. So what are you to do when you're sick? Well, I think modern people, our first reaction to what James says is, he doesn't mention the doctor here. But that's the first thing we say to each other, isn't it? You're really sick. You need to see the doctor. Or you need to call the emergency services. Now, James is not some kind of primitive living in a world where there are no doctors. I mean, I think still the majority of medical students, someone will correct me on this, I think they still take some form of the Hippocratic Oath. And Hippocrates lived five centuries before the birth of Christ. Luke was a physician, so they're very familiar with the idea of going to the doctor. Um, and Paul and James is not despising the notion that we should go to the doctor. This is not a substitute for going to the doctor. But this is something that is very distinctively Christian, isn't it? He said, if anyone is sick among you, then let him call for the elders, and the elders should come and pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And then he goes on to use this illustration of Elijah, which is, I think, why John Ferguson wanted us to read these passages in 1 Kings. Now, there's an entire series of studies in these verses. But let me just make a few very obvious points. Um... Because this is not clear to many Christians, and I think it's not practiced in many churches. When something is not clear in Scripture, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? Well, you look to see what is clear. So here are the things that are clear. First, number one, this is the sick person's responsibility. This is not the elder's responsibility in the first instance to barge into your house and say, here we are, we're the elders. This is the responsibility of the sick person. But it's not just the sick person's responsibility. It is the elder's 
ministry. And therefore, James is not speaking here about a special gift of healing. Paul speaks about people who have the gift of healing. He's not speaking about that. He's speaking about the regular responsibility of the elders. It's their ministry. And because this is a reference to the elders, I take it that this is a continuing responsibility for elders. This is not limited to the days of the New Testament. This is a continuing ministry. And it's also obviously a profoundly spiritual activity because he goes on to speak about confessing our our faults or our sins to one another. That would be an elders meeting, wouldn't it, with you? Um, Thank you for calling us. Um, First thing we're going to do is read James 5. And and one of the elders has brought some oil in his pocket and we're going to anoint you, we're going to pray with you. But the very first thing here is we're all here together in Christ because we need our sins forgiven. Now, I said earlier on, it, it, it is curious that James makes so few references to the Lord Jesus. Actually, half of them are in chapter 5. So very few references to the Lord Jesus. But thoughts about the Lord Jesus just seep through what he says. And you can't think about this, a sick man, and the prayer of faith of others and the need to have sins forgiven. What does that remind you of? I can't help thinking that even if he wasn't there, James knew very well the story that we read in Mark chapter 2 about the four friends who let down the paralyzed man through the roof. And when Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, although he may have had faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And then when he sensed the reaction in the room, how dare he? He said, well, is it it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? And actually, in terms of confirmation, it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say to somebody who's paralyzed, get up and walk. The forgiveness of sins totally invisible. Everybody knows whether when you say get up and walk, it actually works or not. So in order to demonstrate that he can do the more difficult thing, Jesus does what is actually the easier thing. And he says to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. And interestingly, that's all in the context, I think, of the prayer life of our Lord Jesus. And, and so this is seeping through what, what James is saying here about the elders' ministry. That as they anoint with oil, which may be symbolic, it's just possible in some circumstances it might also be medicinal. Remember what the Good Samaritan did with the anointed with oil, rubbed it into wounds? You can imagine that's part of it. It, I think it's probably more significant. But as the elders, together with the sick person, 
acknowledge their faults and their sins, and as a fellowship together, have short accounts with the Lord, know that their sins are forgiven. Then, says James, the prayer of faith will raise up the sick man, which brings us to the difficulty, doesn't it? I mean, all of these things are clear, but what is the prayer of faith? Well, this is why he refers to Elijah and goes out of his way to say, remember how Elijah was in the doldrums, sitting under the tree and wanting to die. He was, a, he was as weak as any of us is, but he was also a righteous man, meaning meaning not he was a man who had never sinned, but meaning in Old Testament terms. Remember Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous people. They weren't perfect people, but they were living in covenant fellowship with God, looking to God, resting in God, trusting in God. And you remember this man, Elijah, who could be more depressed than probably most of us have been. He wanted life to end. He prayed the prayer of faith, and the heavens were shut up. So what is the prayer of faith? What was Elijah doing? Actually, what Elijah was doing was remembering that somewhere or another, he had learned by heart the 28th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Which chapter taught God's people, if you are disobedient to me, then the heavens will close up and the earth will become barren. And what Elijah was doing was, was obviously going to the Lord and saying, Lord, this is your promise. I am coming to you trusting in your promise. You've promised this and you've promised to keep your promises. So, Lord, I'm coming to you. I'm laying hold of your specific promise in this instance, and I'm asking you to fulfill it. And that's what it means to pray the prayer of faith. Praying the prayer of faith is not working something up. Praying the prayer of faith is not some kind of zany conviction that some people have and other people don't. Praying the prayer of faith is taking God at his word and asking him to effect what he has promised to do. Now, obviously, there is, no, there is no specific promise. That was a specific promise. There's no specific promise when you, when you go to uh, Mary's bedside. There's no place in the word of God that says, if you pray the prayer of faith, I will raise up Mary. So that's not what the prayer of faith is in almost every circumstance. It's holding on to the specific promises that God has given and resting on him that if it is his good pleasure, he will fulfill these promises in this particular instance. Now, James doesn't say that, but he knows his Bible well enough to be assuming that and assumes they know their Bibles well enough to understand that he's not just saying you can ask for all kinds of things and if you've enough faith, you will get them.
that has brought a great deal of destruction in the Christian church. But that in prayer, we take hold of the specific promises God has given and we ask that he might be pleased to effect them in this particular instance. And as we pray over, God is pleased in one way or another to raise up the person who is sick, whether to raise them up in the resurrection, which may actually be implied in the language James uses, or raise them up in this life. And any group of elders who, has, who have taken this with this sick person, taken this seriously, have, at least in my experience, realized the, the, the sheer blessedness of taking James at his word and taking God's word at God's word and seeing people, uh, sometimes amazingly, raised up in answer to prayer. What a tragedy it would be if we had not because we asked not. And that brings us to the fourth category. And you'll notice James' wording is just a little bit different here. Is anyone suffering? Hands up. Is anyone cheerful? Hands up. Is anyone sick? Reach for the telephone. But then, my brothers, is anyone backsliding? And you'll notice there's a little twist here. My brothers, verse 19, if anyone is wandering from the truth, then it's not let him stop wandering. It's one of you or some of you should seek to bring him back. This isn't a situation like the previous situation where the person puts his hand up and says, I'm backsliding. Is there anyone here who will help? The person who is backsliding is likely to keep his or her hands in their pockets. But it's so interesting, isn't it, that James ends not only this section, but the whole letter with this whole issue of backsliding. And the description he gives of it is so interesting. He, he speaks about wandering from the truth that leads to death. How do you backslide? What do you need to do to backslide? Actually, you don't need to do anything. That's the problem. All you need to do is wander. The, the, the verbs, the word from which we get the word planet. All you need to do is like wander across the sky. That's the idea. All you need to do is wander. And you know, you might think that each time it goes down the line here, the categories get smaller and smaller. And you certainly would hope that's the case. Do you know it's interesting? I don't know when I last heard a preacher or a Christian use the word, or anybody use the word backslide. And reading this, it made me wonder, actually are we so backslidden that we don't recognize how far we may have wandered from the truth? And you see, it's back to this point again that it's the truth of the gospel in our minds that captures our affections that melts our will that keeps us close to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because Christians too run out of willpower. And he's deeply concerned about this. And he's also deeply concerned that these Christians should understand that if you can bring back a sinner from his wandering, you will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, He's echoing Proverbs 10 there, isn't he? Love covers a a multitude of sins, language that the Apostle Peter uses in in a parallel passage in, in his letter. And you know what? It's a kind of odd way to end a letter, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's ending a letter on a downer. Until you remember this. And this is, I think, another one of those places where James' memory of the Lord Jesus seeps through. Remember how Paul, in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, he makes this strange comment about Jesus appearing in the resurrection, and then he kind of throws in, and he appeared to James. And he appeared to James. No. He appeared to James. No explanation, but a reference to something that happened to James as an individual. James as an individual have thought of that, that Jesus, as it were, went out of his resurrection way to speak to James. Because James had in his earlier life, as the Gospels tell us, the whole family had wandered from the truth. And if they had continued to wander from the truth, the end of that was that though he had lived in the same house with the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, the end of his life would have been death. And after his resurrection, the Lord Jesus had sought him out and brought him back. And I'm sure James could not think about the resurrected Jesus with the nail prints still in his hands without remembering that his love had covered a multitude of his sins. And you know, all of that leads me to this final point of application. You don't need to be mentioning Jesus in every sentence you speak for your life to be expressing what it means to you that he has covered a multitude of sins in you. But when you realize that, then if you're suffering, you know how to pray. And if you're in good heart, you know what to do. And if you're sick, you have this deep conviction that the Lord will raise you up in this day or in the final day. And you want to go to anyone you know who is wandering and say, friend, I want to bring you back to tell you what the Lord Jesus did in seeking me out as an individual and restoring me from my wandering, saving me from death. In a way, the lesson is this. There's more in our lives about the Lord Jesus than the words we speak.
speak them, though we must do. So may the Lord help us to take this to heart. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these months in which we've been studying this little letter of James. We, we want to think more and more about how his knowledge of the Lord Jesus affected him so deeply. Even when he wasn't mentioning his name, he, he couldn't think about anything without thinking about those things through his fellowship with his beloved half-brother, who was the Lord of glory and also his Savior. We pray that by your Holy Spirit we may get to know him well too and to serve him for his glory. And we pray this thanking you for the special gift that you have given in this letter that the Spirit inspired through James, thanking you for its impact on the church in all the centuries and also its blessing to us here in St. Peter's. So hear us, we pray, in our Saviour's name. Amen.